Good morning, church. Today's reading is from Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. Thank you, Sarah. Is there a way to put up the lights up here? Sorry. It's just, uh, um, good morning again, everybody. Uh, I really just want the light on me. So, that's, that's, um, uh, so um, good morning again. My name's Sean. If I don't know you, I'm the uh, lead pastor, teacher pastor here for Redemption Peoria. Uh, Redemption Peoria is part of Redemption Church, which is nine different congregations spread throughout the state of Arizona. Each congregation is lead pastor-led and elder-led, which means um, we're not autonomous in the way that you might think of just a regular church, but at the same time, uh, we're not like satellite somebody in, right? So we tend to be a hybrid, close to a Presbyterian model, if you're familiar with that. Um, And you might have questions about what that means and how that works. I'd love to help you uh, navigate that. Myself and some of the elders will be out by the Connect desk to to process that with you. Um, This morning, we are doing something a little bit different, if you're new, okay? So... Uh, you came at a time that was um, tricky. We normally, we believe, not, we, we normally believe that um, going through the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter is the best way to understand it. We, we're kind of in a uh, stuck spot because we have these like couple weeks between going into Advent, which we didn't, we couldn't fill in a whole book or go over it unless it would be a broad overview. And so each congregation of those nine congregations was left to do kind of what they thought would be important. And uh, last week we started what is the five solas. And if you're not familiar with the five solas, uh, I'm really glad you're here because how I've been processing this whole deal, uh, preparing these sermons, is for you. So I'll recap us here in a second uh, to, to get us where we need to go. But first I want to pray. And I'm going to pray for our time together, but I'm also going to pray um, for the some 7,000 men and women that are um, coming from the south right now towards our borders. And here's why. Um, no matter where you stand politically, um, when they get here, okay, we've talked about this a lot at Redemption Peoria, um, we're not going to let the Republican or the uh, Democratic divide start the conversation. We're going to start with compassion. And so we're going to pray for them, whether you think that what they're doing when they get here, how it's going to play out, no matter what your opinion is, here's what we know. Right now, there are thousands of men and women, some of which um, are being picked off by poachers, some of which are um, stopping because they can't because their kids are just weeping thirsty, hungry, and we're going to go, this is what we're going to do. We're going to say, what if that was us? Would we want people to pray for us? And my guess is yes. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to treat them the way that we would want to be treated um, because this is what Jesus calls us to. So I'm going to pray for our time, but I'm also going to pray for that. Father, thank you so much for who you are. We, uh, we take a moment as um, our worship team led us through some lament to recognize that we've made Sunday mornings across our country talent shows. Um, We tend to follow the siren's call of power and comfort. We hide behind our garage doors and our padlocks. We don't get to know our neighbors. We don't get to know um, our coworkers, our classmates, and we repent of that. Um, We want to enter into the brokenness that they feel. We want to be honest with the brokenness that we feel. 
and we're hiding it. We're, we're acting like everyone else. And I, I pray that a mantra that we would have for redemption purity would be vulnerability. And so because that is so desperately true, um, and the way that you've called us to take care of the poor and marginalized, we lift up um, so many of uh, those who hold the Omago Day, those who are image bearers of you, those, some of which are believers in you, our brothers and sisters in Christ, are um, on a long walk, uh, not even to be here till mid-December. And uh, even this morning, I know, specifically going through a very, very difficult part of a country, um, it's assumed a lot of deaths will take place. And so we pray um, a hedge of protection over them. We pray Psalm 91:11 that angels would guard them in all their ways, that you would protect them, that you would send um, people around them to physically be there. Uh, we pray for lots of cameras and lots of cell phones to record, to fend off those who would dare try to harm someone who bears your image. Give us compassion and love for these people. We love you, Jesus. We follow you, and you love them desperately. So now this morning, as we continue to talk through what is the five solas, and we're reminded of what grace is, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd permeate the room, that you would allow Ezekiel 16 to come alive. Thank you so much for that. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I know that Sarah came up here and read Ephesians 2, but if you're like me, you're just done with Ephesians. And as a pastor said it, it's okay that you can say it too. I'm just done with Ephesians. Um, we actually, as a staff, we were memorizing it, going over it on Sunday. And then some of us went to a conference and then they're like, hey, welcome. This the theme of our conference is going to be Ephesians. I was like, no, please no, please no. Um, I love the Bible and I love Ephesians. But let's talk about something else now. Um, so we're not going to be doing Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We're going to actually be tackling a, a large chapter in the Old Testament. But there's a lot that we need to get there, uh, to, to do to get there. So this is where I want to start. Um, and this is kind of a cultural um, segue for us to understand a little bit. What's going to happen this Tuesday is many of us are going to go out and vote. Unless you did early voting and all that stuff. And you're going to go to a school, a church, whatever it is. Here's what you can be aware of, and here's what you know um, if you follow politics at any type of level. Um, there's these things called watchwords, and watchwords are essentially what the um, Democrats or Republicans, the candidates, they use to um, put in front of people as the heart of their cause. So they take them, and, and it's uh, put in front of uh, billboards. It's people, they're putting it in lawns. They etch it in hats. A watchword for Trump, I don't even need it. You know what it is, make America, make America great again, right? These are called watchwords. It's, it's trying to get at the ethos of what the candidate is doing. It symbolizes the core of their campaign, okay? Now, we've been processing, if you watch TV at all, good Lord, can we stop with the commercials? Cinema, McSally, I don't even care. They're apparently both like devil worshipers. Um, so wherever it is, right, both of them have these watchwords. Now, you probably don't know the watchwords because they're denigrating the other person's watchwords constantly, but they have their watchwords. What we've decided to do over the course of these five weeks is put in front of our church um, Christianity's or the Protestants' watchwords. We, 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 what um, symbolizes, what's at the core, what we value as Protestants. And if you haven't heard that term Protestant before, I'll explain it in a second. But here's like our watchword slogan. This is the best way that I think I can sum it up. 
for you. This is what we would say. There's five things that are core in here that we're going to be studying, and I'll recap the one that we did last week. In the ultimate authority of Scripture alone, which is what we talked about last week, we find that a sinner is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, for the sake of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Now, every time we said the word alone, that's part of the five solos. So let me recap where we were. Last week, uh, we, I put in front of you uh, a history, a history of how we got here as a church. So let me throw up this timeline real quick. This is the timeline uh, that we talked about. And I did my best last week to talk about that vertical line and everything left uh, of it, right? So, so how we understood the church, how we understood what the Pope was doing, how we understood what the clergymen were doing. And at the ethos of what we were trying to get at is unpacking how we got sola scriptura or scripture alone. Because what was happening to the left of this vertical line was the Pope alone or the clergymen were dictating how we would translate scripture. And so there's the Pope and what the Pope says and what scripture says. And to be honest with you, the Pope said what scripture was. Um, Martin Luther, a man named Martin Luther, who we're going to spend a good amount of time on today, he at that vertical line says, well, wait a minute, that's not okay. And what grew out of the Reformation, that vertical line is, is what is called the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant is where we get our word protest. Uh, there was a group of people who protested what was going on and said, no, 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 we have one ultimate authority. There are other authorities. We're cool with the Pope. We're cool with clergymen. But there is one ultimate authority that all other authorities come under, and that is Scripture alone. That's what we unpacked last week. This morning, we're going to talk about what is grace alone. Now, these five things are the core of what we believe. And I tried to explain last week, the reason we're doing that, the reason we're taking these five weeks and unpacking these things is because, not just because they are our watchwords, but because on the opposite end of the spectrum, what we find is other people are defining Protestants or evangelicals different than some of us in the room feel comfortable with. Meaning, um, when you think evangelical, you most likely think Republican and Republican ideals. And we go, that was not the core of evangelical Protestantism. That's not what we understood. The five solas is what we understood that to be. Or the opposite is true. We have a lot of people who are going, I don't know. Let me question this about Christianity. Let me go at this about Christianity, which is awesome. To continue to question what you believe. But we talked about how there's curiosity and questioning mixed with laziness. And so you go, ah, that's what Christianity is. And some of us are going, what? That's not what Christianity is. And so you feel like you're defending something you don't even believe in, right? And so what we're going to do is uh, define the five solas because the five solas define who we are as Christians. So the first one is sola scriptura. The second one is sola gratia. It's grace alone, okay? Now, that vertical line symbolizes when Martin Luther... And the Protestant Reformation took place. The question we have to ask is, what was going on right there? And as we go through the five solas, I'm going to try to extract from that vertical line. And there's something going on that was discovered that was lost before that vertical line. Okay? So let me read something to you from a guy named uh, D. James Kennedy. This is what he says. What is it that Luther discovered? What is the essence of Protestantism? Or of Christianity. What is it that makes Christianity different from every other religion on the face of the earth? What is it that Luther discovered and, of course, that Christ and the apostles brought to light through the gospel? So he asks this question. What happened at that vertical line? What was going on? And then he gives this response. That righteousness is not man's gift to God. It is God's gift to man. 
Okay? So everything, every, can you put the map up for me again real quick? Every line that grows out of that vertical line does not argue with grace alone. Do you understand? Meaning, uh, let's just forget those, those, those other uh, uh, parallel lines. Even uh, uh, false cult religions like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses would even declare grace alone. Okay? The problem is not for us in this moment to define grace. The problem that we need to have right now and talk about right now is how do we define alone? Because whether you're Arminian or Calvinist, whether even as a Catholic or Mormon, wherever you are on any type of these spectrums, you're going to say, no, it's by the grace of God. But to what extent? Like, how much do you really believe grace has done? Or do you believe there's a sliver, a sliver of a sliver of a sliver, that your righteousness is a gift to God? That, that he's done all this work and all you have to do is blank. So we're going to do our best to unpack alone. Now to do it, I want to go to the left of the vertical line again and give you a quick history lesson like I did last week. Last week we talked about the church. This week we're going to talk specifically about one man, the guy I mentioned last week, Martin Luther. Okay? Martin Luther was born to very poor Germans. And uh, he was born in the 1400s, late 1400s. And uh, he grew up poor. Eventually, at age 22, he got a degree to be a lawyer, okay? Now, there are three big events that I need you to track what caused this vertical line, how God used Martin Luther and men and women before him, but Martin Luther to, to uh, kick off the Protestant Ref- Reformation. Um, there are three big things that took place, and these things are important because they begin to unpack the alone of grace alone. So the first thing that takes place is Martin Luther is on his way back to university. Uh, he's getting a further degree uh, in, in being a lawyer uh, to do something. I don't remember exactly what it is. But long story short, on his way back to university, out of nowhere, there's this thunderstorm that takes place. The way that he tells the story is he's walking, um, and it was clear skies, but then clouds start to roll in. And then suddenly, this crazy rain enters. And the way he describes it is lightning struck five feet from him. Now, if anyone has heard lightning nearby, they're always like, lightning was right by me. Really, is like, 200 yards away. So we have no idea. Luther could be crazy. But lightning was close enough for him to be extremely scared. Five feet from him, he would probably be dead. Let's just declare that. But Martin Luther, five feet from him, however close it was, this lightning strikes and he is scared. And if you've ever heard lightning crack by you, you got reason to be scared. Okay? Now, it doesn't just happen once. It happens a couple of times. He, it's raining so bad. The storm is so bad. He loses his way and he's afraid he's going to die. And so he prays to St. Anne, and all he knows at the core, growing up kind of a religious Catholic, he knows to pray to a saint, and so he goes, St. Anne, if you save me, I'll become a monk. I'll, I'll throw away all of the lawyer garbage, and I'll just be a monk. I'll be the real deal. I'll be all in, right? This is his dichotomy that he's living in. Two weeks later, obviously being saved from the thunderstorm, St. Anne saved him, uh, being saved from the thunderstorm, uh, he is enrolled into an August, Augustinian monastery. And, uh, and it's there that we find the second event. As he enters into a priest, he gets to start doing masses. And one mass, the first mass he ever does, his father, who did not love the idea that he was going to be a monk, but said, okay, let's do what we got with what we got. 
he invites about 20 of his friends to come to Luther's first mass. And as he's holding uh, the cup, the chalice, he spills it, which is a huge deal within Catholicism. And as he begins to go through the uh, rhythms, what Catholicism would ask a priest to do, as he's already given his vows of poverty and all that, he has a very rigid order of how he's supposed to lead church. He is overwhelmed with this one thing. He's going through, and he just talks about over and over, I'm hearing about the holiness of God. I'm talking about the holiness of God. He's so filled with fear about how God feels, he can't finish the service, which is devastating to his father and embarrassing. And and it's interesting because this sparks something within Luther, and we begin to find out what's going on within Luther, right? Because amidst the thunderstorm, how does he respond? He responds with, please, if you do this, I'll do this. And now here standing before the church, he's scared, not of like people, or he's not scared of how he's going to get the verses right. He hears through the rhythm of the way in which he's supposed to do church about the holiness of God. He's so scared, he can't finish the service. He actually came up with a a word for this, which is really hard to translate in English. I'll do my best. It's anfunktugian which is the German word, I don't know, what to tell you, okay? Um, He came up with this word because this is how he felt constantly. As he was a priest and before he was a priest, this is how he felt since that thunderstorm, okay? It, It describes this. Best English translation I would give is this. It's a feeling of dread, despair. There's anxiety or like a looming sense of doom. And so here's what he felt this, because no matter what he did as a priest, he couldn't feel right. So he went from flogging, he went from memorizing, he went from praying, he went from fasting, he went from doing everything that he could and still felt like, he's going to kill me, he's not happy with me, I don't know what I need to do, there's a sense of doom in all of this. Luther cannot get right with God. And amidst all of this, his mentor at the time tells him, hey, Why don't you try preaching, which is crazy. He has to go to a school of theology to be able to do this, which he does. And so he's offered to preach uh, in 1515. And as he goes to preach, he's offered this chance to preach on the book of Romans, which leads us to our third event. Now, you have to understand, with it this time, you have such accessibility right now to your Bibles. That was not true back then. And so not only were the common people not able to read their Bibles, Luther at that point had not read from a Bible. He was given certain things to say, but he was never able to study a Bible, even as a priest at the time. And now he's put in a position where he can teach, and now he's able to study the Bible. And when he begins to study the Bible, he comes across some verses that spark the Protestant Reformation. And the most famous one is in Romans chapter 1. He's told to teach on Romans, and so he uh, rolls into Romans chapter 1. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He reads this for the first time, and and he goes, well, wait a minute. If I'm considered righteous... And I'm walking in righteousness. I'm only doing it by faith. It's not what I've done up to this point. Because listen, in his own words, this is how Luther described what he was like before he read Romans 1. I was a good monk. And I kept the rule of my order so strictly that that I may say that even, uh, even if there ever was a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. 
All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept up any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayer, reading, and other work. Luther says, I went hard. I was all in. And if you want all night prayer, I was there. If you want 40 day fasting, I was there. If you want denial of your flesh, I was there. If there was any type of monkery that you could do, I did it. And I'm telling you, I was not at peace. I tried really hard. And can we just stop real quick on Luther? More than any of us, I would argue, have in this room. I mean, I feel like there are moments in my life where I went desperately hard. Candace can attest there are things that I've tried to do because I felt like I was not right with God, selling all that we have, fasting for weeks on end. And I'm telling you, those things did not bring me peace. More than any of us could understand, Luther went hard. And as he went to do this, he couldn't find peace until he ran into Romans 1 and he was reminded or told, maybe for the first time as the Holy Spirit begins to melt on his heart, it's by faith. Now, Dave Goffney's going to unpack faith next week for us, but he goes on to read and understanding this new idea, he comes across Romans chapter 3. Listen to this. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 25. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God uh, put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine uh, forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So Luther goes, there's something that we've been missing, y'all. So this is where we get the vertical line. What happens on the vertical line is Luther is looking out across the landscape of Christianity, and this is what the church is telling them. You need to do things. You need to do things. Before you die, you need to pay penance. Before you die, get your indulgence. We talked about this last week. It's a piece of paper that gets you out of spending this time in purgatory. But more than that, when you pray, pray this certain prayer and don't mess it up. Make sure you say a certain amount of Hail Marys. There's a staircase. If you want to not spend time in purgatory, on your knees, climb up this, see the priest, be given forgiveness, do that. Matter of fact, we know Peter in the Bible was dead. We know where his skull is. If you really, really want to earn grace, go see his skull. We're talking doing things, doing things, doing things over and over and over. And Luther goes, I'm so confused right now. Why are we telling people to do things over and over again when I'm reading Romans 1 and 3 here and it's by faith? I'm so confused as to what's going on, which is where we have to stop. Because um, I want to read some verses in talking about this sola gratia, the sola grace or grace alone. Because the reality is we know the word grace. We've heard it a million times, especially if you grew up in the church. But even if you didn't, you're familiar with it. I want to read some of the famous verses that are used when we talk through this, and here's why. Um, Though grace is used over 150 times in the New Testament alone, I think when we talk about grace, um, we've tied it so closely to us being saved, and then this means something, okay? Which is works or the fruit of something of, of that. Corbin. Corbin. Oh, I thought my son was walking out for the second time. I got no problem as a pastor's kid calling him out. I was like, Corbin, if I see you get up one more time, you're lucky you're sitting there. 
<laughs> okay. So, so let's read what Luther discovered. Grace. Yeah, 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 yeah. Grace. Give your son grace. <laughs> Give him grace. But there's this other side of works that, no. Um, you don't go out of service twice. Okay, so here's what Luther rediscovered in the scriptures. This was missed before that vertical line. This is what Luther discovered. This is in your Bible. Can we just hear them and think through them for a moment? Listen to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Very simple. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. It is by the grace of God that you are what you are. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, which Sarah, part of Sarah came up and read that we went over in detail. Listen to the beauty of this. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised. stop. Now, um, if you read your Bibles, okay, uh, you're looking at your Bible right now, but even if you can see it on the screen, I want you to look at verse 5 real quick and pretend there's no verse separations. So we're just reading, uh, uh, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, it reads far more smooth, far more smooth without those little lines there, doesn't it? I mean, it would make way more sense. He uh, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up from him. It's the same type of language. Paul, though, for some reason, makes this point like he's putting, and so we have to ask, if he's going to make a point, it must matter. I mean, if he's breaking up the, the rhythm of the sentence, it must matter. And so the point of his sentence is this, that he, you're alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the ethos. This is our watchword. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Do you hear that? In the coming ages, we're going to stand with all of eternity, all the people in eternity. And God's going to go, look how awesome I am. Look how awesome I am. And he's not going to go, look how awesome I am. I made creation. Look how awesome I am as I display before the ages because I uh, gave you this idea of election. Not how awesome I am because you came to church and I brought you there. No, no, look how awesome I am. Look at my grace. Look, look how, uh, uh, let me display before the nations in the coming ages his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we, I know we killed that when we were at Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians 2 earlier this year, but hear that. This is what Luther is trying to remind the church of. This was a loss. This was not what they were holding to. That it's by grace alone. It's not your works. It's not what you do. You're just, he's just saved you. He just saved you. I need you to like sit on that. He just saved you. But I, nothing, nothing. You did nothing. He saved you. You were pissed at God before that moment. You were angry because your mom died or your, your dad died or you lost the sibling. You were in a place of frustration. You did not want God. He saved you. But I, nothing, nothing. He saved you. It is grace alone. It is not works. He will display before the nations in the coming ages, not that he did 99%, and look, he did the 1%. Nothing. He saved you. 
We're not done, though. Listen to this. Listen to Romans chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. In talking, if you ever read Romans 9, it's uh, enough fun on its own. But in talking about Romans 11, he goes on to talk about describing Israel, the people of God before this. Listen to this. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It's simple. He chose, this is in the Bible. You were chosen, chosen by grace. Before the foundations of the world, he chose you by grace. And as he chooses you by grace, if we dare bring something to God and say, look what I did, listen, then grace wouldn't be grace. That's, it's like simple logic. It was all him. Now, uh, there's a verse that I don't have on the screen. It's in Titus chapter 3. I want to read it to you, and it's uh, my favorite text. This is not what we're going to unpack, but i got to hurry. Listen to this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. This is in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. Led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Let me read that again, because maybe you don't remember your old life. Even if you were saved as a child, this most likely describes you. Actually, if you were saved as a child, this definitely described you. You were once foolish, disobedient, let us stray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And then it uses this wonderful word, but. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing, the regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, I know that for the most part, we've heard a lot of these verses. Okay, I get that. I understand that. Um, so I want to tell you a story. And I feel like this story, in my opinion, is the best way to explain the depths of grace and grace alone. Now, it's not my story. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 16. And for the remainder of our time, I'm going to do my best to use narrative to explain what we're trying to get at when we say grace alone. So if you can turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 16, this is going to be our text for the last 15 minutes together. I'm going to read it and do my best to explain. Ezekiel has been used by God many times to do this. Essentially, Ezekiel, I want you to feel this, or I want you to do this, or I want you to act like this, because this is what's going on with my relationship with my people. So imagine Jesus, he has a relationship with Redemption Peoria, and Redemption Peoria keeps doing a certain thing. So then he goes to Jim, and he goes, Jim, Jim Ellis is an elder here, Jim, this is what I want you to do to symbolize how the people of Peoria are acting. God continues to do this with Ezekiel. He then, uh, in this moment, Ezekiel 16, he gives a word to Ezekiel and he says, you know what? I want my people to know how I feel. So let me just tell you a little story. And it's a story of a baby who becomes a woman, a woman who becomes a bride, a bride who becomes, and I'm not saying this to be risque or scandalous, but this is the best language I can come up with. Our, I think what the... the intensity of what this is coming from but from a wife to a whore from a whore back to a wife this is this is what happens ezekiel chapter 16 some of the strongest language in all of the scripture is going to be found in what we're here so buckle up then another message came to me from the lord son of man confront jerusalem with her detestable sins give her this message from the sovereign lord 
You are nothing but a Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Oh, dang. Some of us are right, okay? This would be an insult to them. I don't know what to tell you. Like you were in, I don't know. Um, I don't want to say a certain city. I was going to say a certain city, but let's not do that. Um, um, you, you are nothing but a Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, no one cared about you. Your umbilical cord was not cut and you were never washed, rubbed with salt and wrapped in cloth. No one had the slightest interest in you. No one pitied you or cared for you. On that day you were born, you were unwanted, dumped in a field, left to die. We have, ladies and gentlemen, a picture before us of abortion. Here is this baby, unwanted, left to die, bloody in a field. That is how God is describing his people. And and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Canaanite language is meant to symbolize this bastardized language. It's not like you were born into a holy, righteous, royal family and then aborted, left to die in a field. No, no, no. You, You were born as someone who had no part of it, and then you were left even further in a field to die. You were nothing of nothing of nothing. You brought nothing to the table. What? Can a baby in a field, 20 seconds old, what can a baby do to help itself? Nothing. This is the picture God gives us in narrative. Then God says this, but I came by and I saw you there, helpless, kicking about in your own blood. As you lay there, I said, live. And I helped you to thrive like a plant in the field. You grew up and became a beautiful jewel. Your breasts became full and your body hair grew. But you were still naked. And when I passed by again, I saw that you were old enough for love. So I wrapped my cloak around you to cover your nakedness and declared my marriage vows. I made a covenant with you, saying the sovereign Lord and you became mine. So this baby now is taken by this man. God says, I I wiped you down. I took care of you. And now as you're growing, I see you're still naked. So eventually I clothe you and as you grow up you're a beautiful woman and so i took you as my bride you were nothing before you were dead in a field and now you are the king's bride here's her response well let's keep going actually then i bathed you bathed you and washed you off, washed your blood off i rubbed fragrant oils under your skin i gave you expensive clothing of fine linen and silk beautifully embroidered and sandals made of fine goatskin leather I gave you lovely jewelry, bracelets, beautiful necklace, a ring for your nose, earrings for your ears, and a lovely crown for your head. And so you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were made of fine linen and costly fabric and were beautifully uh, embroidered. You ate the finest food, choice flour, honey, and olive oil, and became more beautiful than ever. You looked like a queen, and so you were. Your fame soon spread throughout the whole world because of your beauty. I dressed you in my splendor and perfected your beauty, says the sovereign Lord. You grew up, and I gave you the nice clothing. I had to grow up shopping at Payless. Y'all got to go to Just for Feet. And so, remember Just for Feet? Okay, so, so I, I gave you the, the nice dresses. I gave you the nice jewelry. I gave you a crown for your head. So beautiful you were. So beautiful that people looked from all around at you. Wow. She's really pretty. Wow. Not because you did it, but you were a baby that was left to die. I saved you. You grew up. I clothed you with the nice stuff. And here is the wife's response. Verse 15. This is on the NLT FYI if you're trying to follow along. But you thought your fame and beauty were your own. So you gave yourself as a prostitute to every man who came along. Your beauty was theirs for the asking. 
You used the lovely things that I gave you to make shrines for idols, where you played the prostitute. Unbelievable. How could such a thing ever happen? You took the very jewels and gold and silver ornaments I had given you, and I had made statues of men and worshipped them. This is an adultery against me. You used the beautifully embroidered clothes I gave you to dress your idols. Then you used my special oil and my incense to worship them. Imagine it. You set before them a sacrifice, the choice flower, olive oil, and honey I had given you, says the Lord. Now he goes on from verses 20 to 29 to continue to say what what this woman did. Sacrificing your own children. Giving your body away. You took all that I give you, gave you and you just squandered it. Now, listen to this. This is, this is um, God's response to this. What a sick heart you have, says the sovereign Lord. To do such things as these, acting like a shameless prostitute. You build your pagan shrines on every street corner and your altars to idols in every square. In fact, you have been worse than a prostitute. So eager for sin that you have not even demanded a payment. Yes, you are an adulterous wife who takes in strangers instead of her own husband. Prostitutes charge for their services, but not you. You give gifts to your lovers, bribing them to come and have sex with you. So you are the opposite of other prostitutes. You pay your lovers instead of their paying you. So it's not that you just sinned. You gave yourself away you gave all that you had you didn't just not worship god you gave yourself away and if you were a husband in the room and this is how your wife acted you can understand what god's about to say from verse 42 to 58 um, he lays into this prostitute but before that this is what he says to set the tone therefore you prostitute listen to this message from the lord This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you have poured out your lust and exposed yourself in prostitution to all your lovers, and because you have worshipped detestable idols, and because you have slaughtered your children as sacrifices to your gods, this is what I am going to do. I will gather together all of your allies, the lovers of whom you have sinned, but those whom you loved and those whom you hated, and I will strip you naked in front of them so they can stare at you. I will punish you for your murder and adultery. I will cover you with blood in my jealous fury. Then I will give you to these many nations who are your lovers, and they will destroy you. They will knock down your pagan shrines and the altars of your idols. They will strip you and take your beautiful jewels, leaving you stark naked. They will band together in a mob to stone you and cut you up with swords. They will burn your homes and punish you in front of many women. I will stop your prostitution and end your payments to your many lovers. No, 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 hear this. God is not happy. And all you need to hear in all this is wrath. You want to act like, and again, I'm not saying this for the sake of a scandalous, but you want to act like a whore, okay, then you're going to suffer. And so God's wrath is built up. It is built up, and he is angry. I know we don't like the Old Testament God, but here it is. And then something crazy happens. Verse 60. In God's anger, verse 60. Yet, it doesn't matter what major translation you want to read, yet is the word that is translated. I think it's a proper translated. There's some other translations, you, some of your translations might say but or nevertheless. But the point is, I am angry. But, yet, I will remember the covenant. I will remember the covenant I made with you when you were young. 
I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember with shame all the evil you have done. I will make your sisters Samaria and Sodom and your daughters be to be your daughters, even though they were not part of your covenant. I will reframe my covenant with you and you will know that I am the Lord. Um, Ezekiel is meant to be prophetic. It's uh, prophetic literature. It's meant to point us towards something that's, that's going to happen. And what happens is um, God is saying before his people, he establishes this covenant. And a covenant is different than contract. We've talked about this a lot, right? Like I'm doing four weddings this month. So I'm going to explain every time in these, these weddings, hey, listen, this is not contractual. It's covenantal. You're expressing a love to say, I'm not going anywhere no matter what you do. And this is what God has said. I'm not going anywhere no matter what you do. I have made a covenant with you. But God has this wrath. And he chooses not to execute because Ezekiel is prophetic. Listen to the language. I will remember. I will in the future remember in the past. Like this is, I will remember something in the past. I made a covenant with you. Matter of fact, listen to uh, Ezekiel 36. It's so prophetic that God declares to the same people in the future, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, to be careful, to obey my rules. God has wrath, but this is prophetic. He says, I am angry. I am angry, but I will remember my covenant. Well, how does he do it? Who do you think of when I read verses 35 through 41? Therefore, you prostitute, listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you have poured out your lust and exposed yourself in a prostitution to all of your lovers, because you have worshipped detestable idols, and because you have slaughtered your children as sacrifices to your God, this is what I am going to do. I will gather you together with all of your allies. Listen to this. Listen to this, because that just described us. But who does this describe? The lovers of whom you have sinned? Both those whom you loved and those whom you hated, I will strip you naked in front of all of them so that they can stare at you. I will punish you for your murder and adultery. I will cover you with the blood in my jealous fury. Then I will give you to these men, these nations, and these lovers, and they will destroy you. They will knock down your pagan shrines and your altars to your idols. They will strip you and take your beautiful jewels, leaving you stark naked. They will band together in a mob to stone you and cut you with swords. They will burn your homes and punish you in front of many women, I will stop your prostitution and end your payments to many lovers. Man, that sure helps signify and point us towards a very strong wrath. And the only wrath that I can think of in this moment that Ezekiel is pointing towards is come, but comes close for a moment of what Mel Gibson tries to show us. This is the passion that in this moment, God can say, I'm angry. You've acted like a whore. You've acted like a whore, and you will be punished. But I'm going to take that wrath. I'm going to take that punishment. You want to be naked with others? I'm going to take that nakedness. You want to sell your jewels? I'll take the crown of thorns. You want to be cut? I'll take the bruises on my back. I'll do it. I'll do it. You want to know why? Because I made a covenant. I'm in this even when you're not. And our only response, it's only fitting our response, is what God gives us in verse 63. You will remember your sins and cover your mouth in silent. You will remember sins and cover your mouth in silent shame when I forgive you of all that you have done. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. When we 
understand what Jesus has taken, the way that we acted, and he took that wrath, it's like, uh, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. I can't believe this. I can't. I did this. I did this. This is me. This is my actions. This is my sin. This is me wanting my own way. This is me wanting my own desires. This is me. Maybe I'm not worshiping uh, real idols. Maybe I'm not uh, giving away real clothing. But no, no, no. I'm doing this daily. Every flirtatious act, every look at pornography, every stealing of the dime, every time I mistreat someone, this is me wanting my own way, wanting control, wanting power, and I can't help but cover my mouth to know that the wrath that should have came to me went to Jesus. It's interesting because uh, I think Spurgeon said it the best. um, You get to stand before God the Father as Jesus Because Jesus stood before God the Father as you. So to the extent of alone, let me just be clear on how grace alone this is. How much we've brought to the table. Because if a baby is the picture God wants to give us. A helpless, aborted child in a field, covered in blood. If that is the the picture that, that scripture wants to give us then let me be clear, because some of these terms you might not understand, but you will know where we stand at Redemption Peoria. You can go ahead and listen to the sermon online, and you can look these terms up. But to be clear, these are the words, the theological terms, that we would describe as the alone. You ready? Grace alone in God's electing work. Grace alone in God's atoning work. Grace alone in God's regenerating work. Grace alone in God's sanctifying work. And grace alone in God's glorifying work. Now, if you don't know those terms, that's okay. Go look them up. And as you look them up, I hope this is what you see. There is no part on this timeline, even before there was time, that you did anything. Now, we may not have the same issues as Luther was dealing with, because here's what we're doing. My time's almost up. Here's what we're doing. What we're doing in this moment is we're thinking we're cool. If you grew up in the church, you want to continue to earn grace. We've talked about this over and over. You think it's the movies and the music you listen to or don't listen to. But there's this opposite side that our culture continues to push and goes, well, I'm fine. I'm good. I mean, I I don't feel guilty. I don't need this. Let me just put in front of you real quick. That's a fake grace. You're feeling and walking in a facade. Because here's how I know. It's going to be so in and out. When you mess up or you do something wrong, you're going to go, well, I'm still a good person. I just, no, no, no. If we're rock bottom, base, fundamental baseline of what Christianity is, it has always been, it will always be no matter what you do, God's grace. It's dense. It's strong. And we forget so easily. And so Luke Simmons, pastor of Redemption Gateway, says it perfectly. The gospel is so counterintuitive to our normal way of operating that it needs to be continually rediscovered. I pray that is what we do. We continually rediscover the goodness of grace alone. Not what we do, but grace alone. Let's pray. Father, we never want to be a church that shies away from the intensity of Scripture. Spirit, lead us as we use terms that are extremely difficult. That before we knew you, Jesus, to be described as a whore, a prostitute, this is difficult. 
to be described as an aborted child, this is difficult. There's such strong language here, but I pray that the more we know we are forgiven, the more we will love. That we would recognize we didn't do anything. And that we are grateful for the rediscovery in the Protestant Reformation. That no matter how those parallel lines want to take grace alone, we hold fast to the fact that the alone is everything. We are saved by nothing else. So I pray, Jesus, you'd help us. Spirit, remind us of the things in which Jesus says, according to John 14, 26. Remind us, Holy Spirit, as you tell us in John 6, when it comes to Jesus, what do we need to do to earn righteousness? It is but to believe upon the Savior. Help us, help us, help us. Thank you for the goodness of this grace and lead us to understand how it ties together next week with faith. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.